a copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to turn to John chapter 11. We're going to skip a few chapters ahead in the Gospel of John, but stay, but stay in, this, in this Gospel. Father, we turn our eyes to Jesus. We ask that we would see Him and His glory in this passage. That we would come to know and to believe that He is the resurrection and the life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're you're going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, 
he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he'd said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Never fear dying, beloved, said the great preacher Charles Spurgeon. And he continued from there. Dying is the last but the least matter that a Christian has to be anxious about. Think about that. The last but the least. For Christians, death is certainly the last trial, and it is a trial indeed, but it's the least trial to be feared. And the question is why? And how can we have that same hope? When the year 1678, John Bunyan's classic, The Pilgrim's Progress, was published, it was six years after his 12-year imprisonment for his faith. And interestingly enough, he actually wrote Pilgrim's Progress inside the walls of his prison cell. And the book is about a man named Christian who allegorically sits in the role of all Christians. And Bunyan takes us on a journey with Christian as he faces trial after trial, the same trials that many of us will face. So Christian's actually a little glimpse uh, of what we all must go through. In fact, Paul did say to a brand new church that it's through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So as we approach the end of the pilgrim's progress, Christian and his friend Hopeful are closing in on the celestial city. And I, I recognize there's a little bit of a spoiler here, but since the book was written in 1678, I think we can deal with it. Their pilgrimage is almost complete. But they have one last trial that they have to face, death. 
In allegorical fashion, they come to the river of death where there is no bridge over it. And here's how Bunyan tells it. I'll read this closing section. Now I further saw that between them and the gate was a river, but there was no bridge to pass over it. And the river was very deep. At the sight of this river, the pilgrims were bewildered. But the men said to them, you must go through the river or you cannot enter in at the gate. The pilgrims then began to inquire if there was any other way to the gate. To which the men answered, yes, but only two since the foundation of the world have been permitted to tread that path, namely Enoch and Elijah. Nor shall any others go that way until the last trumpet shall sound. The pilgrims then, especially Christian, began to lose heart. They looked this way and that, but they could not find another way by which they might escape the river. Then they asked the men if the waters were all the same depth. No, they replied, you shall find it deeper or shallower just as you believe in the king of the city. The pilgrims then approached the water. Upon entering it, Christian began to sink, crying out to his good friend, hopeful, He shouted, I am sinking in deep waters. The billows are rolling over my head. All his waves are washing over me. And then Hopeful replied, take courage, my brother. I feel the bottom and it is firm. Christian then cried out, oh, my friend, the sorrows of death have encompassed me about. I shall not see the land which flows with milk and honey. With that, a great darkness and horror fell upon Christian so that he could not see ahead of him. He also in great measure lost his senses so that he could neither remember nor talk coherently of any of those sweet refreshments which which he had met with along the way of his pilgrimage. But all the words that he spoke tended to manifest his horror of mind and heart fears that he would die in that river and never obtain entrance at the gate. Here also, as those two men who stood by perceived Christian was much in troublesome thoughts concerning the sins that he committed both before and since he began to be a pilgrim. It was also observed by his words that he was troubled with apparitions of hobgoblins and evil spirits. Hopeful, therefore, labored hard to keep his brother's head above water. Yes, sometimes Christian almost drowned, but then in a short time he would surface again half dead. Hopeful would also endeavor to encourage him, saying, Brother, I see the gate and men standing ready to receive us. But Christian would answer, It's you. It's you they're waiting for. You've been hopeful ever since I first knew you. And so have you, responded Hopeful. Ah, brother, cried Christian, surely if I were right with God, then he would now arise to help me. Because of my sins, he's brought me into the snare and has left me. So Hopeful reminded him. My brother, you have quite forgotten the text where it says of the wicked, they have no struggles in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not troubled as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. These troubles and distresses that you're going through in these waters are no indication that God has forsaken you. Rather, they are only sent to test you as to whether you will call to mind what you have received of his goodness and live upon him in your present distress. Then I saw in my dream that Christian was in deep thought for a while. Hopeful then added this word. Take courage. Jesus Christ makes you whole. With that, Christian cried out with a loud voice. Oh, I see him again. And he tells me when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you go through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. Then they both took courage. After that, the enemy was 
as still as a stone and could no longer hinder them. Christian therefore felt firm ground to stand upon and found that the rest of the river was but shallow. Thus they both crossed. Hopeful was hopeful. Christian was terrified. But they both made it to the other side of the river where they were safe with their Savior forever. And Bunyan goes on to describe the celestial city. So death was the last trial, but in reality, it was the least trial to be feared. Now, perhaps you think that you would be more like hopeful when death comes, or maybe you'll be more like Christian. But if you're a follower of Jesus, your outcome is going to be the same as theirs. Not because you are good, not because you are strong, not because you have power within yourself to overcome death, but because Jesus says in our text, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then Jesus asks this question. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus himself is the resurrection and the life? And that because he is so, If you believe in him, that when you die, you will live. And in fact, you'll never really die at all. Well, this Easter morning, we have a text where Lazarus has been dead for four days. And Jesus brings him back to life. And I want us to meditate briefly together on Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life. All of our hope for life is found in him because he is the resurrection and the life. So as we look at John chapter 11 and meditate on this truth for us on this Easter morning, we're going to notice four things. We're going to see Jesus' motives. We'll see the people mourning. Third, we'll see Jesus' miracle. And lastly, his message. Jesus' motives, the people mourning, Jesus' miracle and Jesus' message. First, Jesus' motives. When Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, everything that he does is marked by love. That's his motive. Love for the Father and love for people. We can see this beginning in verse 3 there. When Martha and Mary send messengers to Jesus, it says, So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now notice the sisters don't, Give the man's name. They didn't say Lazarus is ill. So apparently Jesus' love for his friend was so obvious that his friend could be identified as the one whom he loves. Martha and Mary thought, if we just say that, he'll know exactly who we're talking about. So Jesus obviously has great love for Lazarus. And as Jesus responds to the messengers in verse 4, we see his loving motives again. When Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So Jesus' motives are for God to be glorified through him. This is love. It's more than just a miracle. It's more than just something cool that Jesus wanted to do. He wants to act so that people see glory and so that God receives praise. And then look at verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. 
Now, that's different than just saying Jesus loved them. Each person here is mentioned. Jesus loved Martha. Jesus loved Mary. And Jesus loved Lazarus. I mean, isn't there a difference between a father saying, I love you guys to his kids, which is good, but also taking time to say, I love you and I love you and I love you. When's the last time you've considered that Jesus loves you? Not just loves the church, which he does. It's his bride that he laid on his life for, but that he loves you as an individual member of it. But the key verse that I want to show you, which really brings to light Jesus's loving motives in all of this, is when you read verses five and six together. In verse five, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, Jesus knew Lazarus was sick but waited two days before going to see the family. And at first glance, that might sound insensitive. It might sound unloving. Isn't he supposed to go pay a visit as soon as he can? That's not, that's not what John says. John says Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. Lazarus verse six, so... In other words, therefore, because he loved them, he stayed two days longer. So on the surface, it might seem like Jesus is being unloving here, but apparently he waited specifically because he does love them. His waiting is an act of love. That is his motive here. And perhaps that's because he wanted the people to believe. I mean, he does tell the disciples in verses 14 and 15, Lazarus has died and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. And before he raises Lazarus from the dead, he tells Martha, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And even when he thanks God for listening to his prayers, he says, I knew you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people around that they may believe you sent me. So Jesus has loving purposes in everything he's doing. And the delay had its purpose. That Mary and Martha and the mourners and the disciples would believe. Ultimately, that they would see him as the resurrection and the life. So regardless of the details of this text, here's what we can't conclude. We can't conclude that Jesus was waiting selfishly or insensitively or unlovingly. Because even if it's hard for us to understand, John says Jesus loved each of them. So therefore, he stayed two extra days. So we see Jesus's motives are motives of love. Sometimes it can be hard to see it that way, can't it? It can be difficult to trust Jesus' character when our circumstances are painful. It can be hard to trust Jesus' care when we go through trials. And like Christian in the river, it can be easy to lose sight of Jesus' love when faced with the realities of death. And if that's you, like me, then we can relate to the mourners in this text, which is what we move to now. We're introduced to Martha and Mary and the mourners, which would have been professional weepers during this day. There would be folks sometimes called wailing women who would come to grieve uh, the loss and comfort the family. 
It was something they did during funerals. This was there were professional mourners that would come. But look at how all these folks respond to Jesus. In Martha's case, when Jesus comes to her, she says this in verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, we need to be kind to Martha because she's grieving. She does go on to express trust in Jesus in the midst of pain. Very next verse, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. But even though she says that, she doesn't seem to think that Jesus will raise Lazarus at this moment. Because when Jesus says that Lazarus will raise, she thinks about the resurrection on the last day. She's not thinking about resurrection to life now. But she does think that if Jesus was here, he could have at least prevented death. And then we get to Mary. When she talks to Jesus, she says the same exact thing as Martha without the extra hope there at the end. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And then the mourners chime in in verse 37. Some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? He could have kept this man from death. Could have prevented it. Now, what are we to make of this? It's possible that Jesus' motives are in question. Maybe these remarks have a little bit of a bite to them. Like, Jesus, why weren't you here? Why did you wait two days? And even if that's a bit of a stretch, this still says something remarkable about these people's faith, these mourners, about their faith, both where it excels and where it lacks. Martha and Mary and the mourners are all in universal agreement that if Jesus had been there, he could have certainly stopped Lazarus from dying. They know, they believe that Jesus is powerful. He healed a blind man. Surely he can keep somebody from death. But can he revive somebody from death? They all believe that Jesus could have prevented it. But in their minds, once death happens, there's nothing Jesus could do. There was no hope. All throughout this book, Jesus has performed remarkable signs. He turns water into wine. He heals a paralyzed man. He gives a blind man's sight. He feeds 5,000 men with plus their women and children with only five loaves of bread and two fish. He walks across the water as though it were dry ground. So surely Jesus could have done something like prevent death. But could he do something once Lazarus had died? Is even this too late and too difficult for Jesus to do? Hunger, paralysis, blindness, all that can be reversed. But what about the last enemy that everyone in this room will have to face? What about death? Can Jesus do something about that? So church, if you struggle to feel and to know and to trust and to hope in the power of Jesus over death, Jesus cares deeply about that struggle. And he wants us to have hope because after Mary's conversation with Jesus in verse 33, it says, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. 
And then something similar said after the mourners questioned if he could have prevented it when he was there, if, if he would have been there. And it says in verse 38, then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. Now that term, deeply moved, means indignant, angry. It's often used as a form of rebuke. Jesus is emotionally and physically upset. Church, not at the death of Lazarus, because he knew he would raise Lazarus from the dead. He knew all of this was going to be for the glory of God. Jesus was deeply moved by the lack of hope. They didn't mourn as people with hope. They mourned as people without it. And so Jesus was stirred up in his heart to act so that these people would believe, so these people would have hope, so they would know that he is the resurrection and the life. So when you doubt and fear and lack hope during any trial, but especially in the face of death, Jesus cares deeply about it. And he goes to great lengths to show us again just who he is. In this case, Jesus performed a miracle. The first half of John's gospel is often called the book of signs because it's all the signs that he does. And this sign in chapter 11 is the last and the greatest of them, of course, until we get to the very end of the book, which is what Easter is all about. But here Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. That's the miracle. So let's read some parts of verses 39 through 44. That's where we're looking here. And and to be sure, by the way, Lazarus is dead. He is dead, dead. John goes to great lengths to show us that he's dead. This is not a gimmick. It's not an illusion. It's not a magic trick. This is real life. Ironically, it's real, however you'd say it. This is, this is real death. <laughs> Verse 39 says, Martha, the sister of the dead man. That same verse says, He has been dead four days. Verse 44 says, the man who had died came out. John wants us to know Lazarus is dead. But Jesus tells Martha that she's going to see the glory of God. And then he prays so the people would hear and believe. And then he speaks. Three words and the dead man came to life. So Jesus not only raised him to life, but Jesus did it with the command. Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus came out. Now, if that doesn't show the power of Jesus's words, and I don't know what does. As the old saying goes, I don't know who said it. But if Jesus hadn't specified Lazarus by name, all the tombs would have become empty. It reminds me of John 5, 25, when Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And three verses later in that chapter, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now, Jesus isn't raising Lazarus up for the final judgment like he will on the last day. But isn't he showing us that he alone is the one who has the power to do it? 
Isn't he showing us that he alone is the one who has power over life and death? Let's just pause for a moment and consider the weight of this, that our greatest enemy is death. It is the great equalizer. The rich and the poor are exactly the same when they take their last breath. The strong are one day going to close their eyes and be just like the weak. All the great and powerful people throughout history that we have to read about because they're no longer here, they're no longer here because they finally met their match named death. Our greatest enemy is death. It can never be defeated on our own, but it's overcome by three simple words out of the mouth of Jesus. So we've seen his motives. We've seen the mourners, and we've seen Jesus' miracle. Now let's go back in the story where we see Jesus' message. Jesus didn't do miracles for just the miracle. He did them for the message. They're called signs because they signify something about him. And Jesus tells us in verses 21 through 27 what it is. What all of this is for. Starting in verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again on the res- in the resurrection on the last day. Lazarus died. Jesus tells her plainly, your brother will rise again. And her mind goes directly to what was current day orthodox belief. Especially for the Pharisees. If you're ever trying to remember, the Sadducees denied the resurrection. That's why they're sad, you see. So the Pharisees believed... <laughs> In this current day, Orthodox believe that there would be a resurrection. So Mary is saying, of course, Jesus, I know he will always, uh, that he will rise again. He'll rise again on the last day, like we all believe. But for, for Martha, what did Jesus have to do with that belief? I mean, the Pharisees believed it. Most of them hated Jesus. What did Jesus and life and resurrection have to do with one another for Martha? I love what Jesus does next. He takes the attention off of Lazarus. He takes the attention off of the last day. He turns the attention to himself. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? The topic is no longer Lazarus. It's whoever would believe. The topic is no longer the last day. The topic is life now. The topic is no longer resurrection in general. The topic is the one who is himself the resurrection. Jesus is making the point to live. Lazarus, Martha, Mary, the mourners, you and me need Jesus. He is the resurrection. He is the life. So when Jesus goes and performs this miracle, he's letting us all know that what he did for Lazarus, he can do for us. He can do it for our souls and our bodies. 
that if we believe in Jesus, though we were dead in our sins, we will be alive. And though your body will one day go into the ground, at that moment, you will still be present with the Lord. And yes, one day, Jesus is going to come and call out again with his voice, a simple command, everybody will rise, reunited with their souls, and those who believe in Jesus will live with him forever. And if you don't, death is not the last or least trial to worry about. It's not the last, it's not the least, it's not even the greatest. If you don't believe in Jesus, there is a terrible reality on the other side of death that is much more to be feared. But for those who come to Jesus for life, death is the last but the least matter to concern you. And Jesus looks at us and asks, do you believe this? Can you say with Martha, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Friends, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. That's the message. That's why he did what he did on that day. Now, there seems to be great irony here. The miracle in which a dead man is raised leads to a plot to make Jesus a dead man. And Caiaphas ironically prophesies, he says, it's better for Jesus to die for the nation than for the whole nation to die. Now, what he means is that Jesus is gaining a whole lot of followers and people are going to want to make him king. And if they do that, Caesar won't like it. The Romans won't like it. And they'll probably shut down the whole Jewish system. So Jesus needs to die so that the nation will live. And Caiaphas spoke better than he knew, didn't he? Jesus did come to die so that people would live. He came to die so that the punishment of death would be paid. But if Jesus came to die, would Jesus be able to defeat death then? He raised Lazarus from the dead, but what about when it's his body in the tomb? Well, in chapter 10 of this gospel, Jesus says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. And what we proclaim on Easter is that three days later, Jesus took his life up again. He is the resurrection and the life. When he appeared to his disciples later, they believed, except for Thomas. Thomas doubted he wanted to see the holes in his hands and his side. So Jesus appears to Thomas as well. And we'll close with this at the end of this gospel. I think it puts a bow on it. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came, stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands and put, your, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet 
have believed. How are the folks in this room who've not physically seen Jesus going to believe? Then John writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. There were so many people in the Gospel of John who saw with the eyes of their head and didn't believe. You have to see with the eyes of your heart. As you see these words, and as you hear the Word of God preach that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, do the eyes of your heart see His glory and believe? If so, you can have life in His name. So on this Easter Sunday, I ask the same question that Jesus asked Martha. Do you believe this? Do you believe this?